Welcome to the Colonial Hills Podcast, a ministry of Colonial Hills Baptist Church. Our ushers are coming by and they have an outline sheet for you. It looks like this. If you haven't picked one up already, wave them over and they'll put that in your hands as we open our Bibles this evening to the book of 2 Kings and the third chapter, 2 Kings chapter 3. 2 Kings has been called the saddest book in all Jewish history, the saddest book in all Jewish history. The first 17 chapters of 2 Kings tells the story of the captivity and the destruction and the carrying away of the 10 tribes that comprised the northern kingdom of Israel under Sargon of the Assyrians in 721 B.C. Then, in chapter 18 through chapter 25, the second part of the sad story is told as the captivity of Judah, the two tribes that surrounded Jerusalem and stayed true to the house of David, they too fall prey to the captivity brought about in 586 B.C. under Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. Second Kings is the Old Testament's dark book of dispersions. And in this dark book of dispersions, there's a light that shines. And the light has a name, and his name is Elisha. Elisha means, my God is salvation. Elisha is used of God to accomplish more miracles through his life and through his instrumentality than anyone else in the record of God's Word. He served the Lord for 50 years, valiantly for 10 years as the assistant prophet to Elijah. Then for 40 years on his own, he would stand before five kings. He would establish and minister in schools of the prophets. In the Old Testament era, he'd be used of God to accomplish 19 miracles. We're opening our Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 3 this evening. 2 Kings chapter 3. Follow along, please, as I read the chapter for us this evening. Now Jehoram, the son of Ahab, began to reign over Israel and Samaria in the 18th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, and reigned 12 years. And he wrought evil in the sight of the Lord, but not like his father and like his mother. For he put away the image of Baal that his father had made. Nevertheless, he cleaved unto the, seeds, the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, which made Israel to sin. He departed not therefrom. And Mesha, king of Moab, was a sheep master and rendered unto the king of Israel a hundred thousand lambs and a hundred thousand rams with their wool. But it came to pass, when Ahab was dead, that the king of Moab rebelled against the king of Israel. And the king Jehoram went out of Samaria at the same time and numbered all Israel. He went and sent unto Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, saying, The king of Moab hath rebelled against me. Wilt thou go with me against Moab to battle? And he said, I will go up. I am as thou art, my people as thy people, and my horses as thy horses. And he said, Which way shall we go up? And he answered, The way through the wilderness of Edom. So the king of Israel went, and the king of Judah, and the king of Edom. They fetched a compass of seven days' journey. There was no water for the host and for the cattle that followed them. The king of Israel said, Alas, that the Lord hath called these three kings together to deliver them into the hand of Moab. But Jehoshaphat said, Is there not yet a prophet of the Lord that we may inquire of the Lord by him? And one of the king, one of the king of Israel's servants answered and said, Here's Elisha, the son of Shaphat, which poured water on the hands of Elijah. Jehoshaphat said, The word of the Lord is with him. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, the king of Edom, went down to him. And Elisha said unto the king of Israel, What have I to do with thee? 
Get thee to the prophets of thy father, and to the prophets of thy mother. The king of Israel said unto him, Nay, for the Lord hath called these three kings together to deliver them into the hand of Moab. And Elisha said, As the Lord of hosts liveth, before whom I stand, surely, were it not that I regard the presence of Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, I would not look toward thee, nor see thee. But now bring me a minstrel. It came to pass when the minstrel played that the hand of the Lord came upon him, and he said, Thus saith the Lord, Make this valley full of ditches. For thus saith the Lord, You shall not see wind, neither shall you see rain. Yet the valley shall be filled with water, that you may drink, both ye and your cattle and your beast. And this is but a light thing in the sight of the Lord. He will deliver the Moabites also into your hand. Ye shall smite every fenced city and every choice city. You shall fell every good tree and stop all wells of water and mar every good piece of land with, inst- with, with stones. And it came to pass in the morning when the meat offering was offered that, behold, there came water by the way of Edom, and the country was filled with water. When all the Moabites heard that the kings were come up to fight against them, they gathered all that were able to put on armor and upward and stood in the border. They rose up early in the morning, and the sun shone upon the water, and the Moabites saw the water on the other side as red as blood, and they said, This is blood. The kings are surely slain. (laughs) They smitten one another. Now therefore, Moab, to the spoil. When they came to the camp of Israel, the Israelites rose up and smote the Moabites, so that they fled before them, but they went forward smiting the Moabites even to their own country. They beat down the cities, and on every good piece of land cast every man his stone and filled it. They stopped all the wells of water, felled all the good trees. Only in Kirheth Seth left they stones thereof. Howbeit the slingers went about it and smote it. And when the battle of Moab saw that the battle, or the king rather of Moab saw that the battle was too sore for him, he took with him seven hundred men that drew swords to break through, even unto the king of Edom, but they could not. Then he, the king, king of Moab took his eldest son that should have reigned in his stead and offered him for a burnt offering upon the wall. And there was great indignation against Israel. They departed from him and returned to their own land. The allied armies of Edom and Israel and Judah go to war against the Moabites. They marched seven days into the wilderness and then they discovered they were without water. 2 Kings chapter 3 is a complicated passage, but it's a complicated passage that presents three very simple principles. Principles for all of us when our back is to the wall. In verse 9, the king of Israel went and the king of Judah and the king of Edom, they fetched a compass of seven days' journey. There was no water for the host and for the cattle that followed them. The king of Israel said, alas, that the Lord hath called these three kings together to deliver them into the hand of Moab. Have you ever felt like your back's to the wall? Like you're facing a situation and you have no answer? Almost feeling like the end has come, that there's no escape for the problems that you're facing? The 27th of August back in 1776, Less than two months after the Declaration of Independence had been signed, General George Washington, having led his troops down to Manhattan, faced off in the Battle of Brooklyn Heights. Washington and his army had pushed back the Redcoats in Boston, knowing that the Manhattan Harbor would be a very strategic place for the British. Washington reassembled his army in Manhattan, 
General Howe brought his British troops to the uninhabited island called Staten Island, where the Statue of Liberty today stands. General Howe had 32,000 soldiers. George Washington had 19,000 poorly trained new recruits. When the battle began, the Continental Army was very brave until suddenly it was discovered that General Howe had surreptitiously sneaked around the island and put General Washington's whole Continental Army in a pincher move, and it looked like certainly they would all die. Washington, immediately upon hearing what had happened to his army, abandoned his lines, withdrew his troops, and he did it in the darkness. It's one of the greatest escapes ever known in the history of warfare. 400 soldiers came from Maryland, staved off and slowed down the British troops. When it was all over, 300 Continental soldiers had died, 1,000 had been taken prisoner, and most of those 1,000 would be put on ships out in the Atlantic, and over half of them would die either of starvation or deprivation. Following the disaster that was Brooklyn Heights, there was a time to reassess, a time to retool, a time to ask, how can we avoid any such action like this ever happening to us again? As we open our Bibles this evening to 2 Kings chapter 3, we have the luxury of being able to reassess. We can look at this passage and do some retooling. We can ask, what was it that happened to the armies of Edom and Israel and Judah that caused them to just about be annihilated? Now, some could blame the quartermaster general. After all, he was in charge of water and food uh, for the army. Some could blame the drought and the conditions, circumstances, perhaps claiming that they were unusual. But the point of fact is the soldiers were there and they were without water and they knew that they would soon die. So let's ask the Spirit of God to help us do an assessment of 2 Kings chapter 3 and discover three universal spiritual principles that help all of us know how to stand when our backs are against the wall. Help us avoid being in a place where our backs are against the wall. The first principle we discover in the passage to which we turned is this. Partial obedience is always disobedience. Partial obedience is disobedience. Jehoram, verse 1, the son of Ahab began to reign over Israel and Samaria in the 18th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah. He reigned 12 years. Now watch. He wrought evil in the sight of the Lord, but not like his father and like his mother. His father was Ahab. His mother was Jezebel. He put away the image of Baal that his father had made. Nevertheless, he cleaved unto the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which made Israel to sin. Jeroboam's wicked father, King Ahaz, with his wicked mother, Jezebel, had brought Baal worship into the land. I believe that for Jehoram, making a decision not to practice Baal worship was probably something of a pragmatic decision, after all. During his lifetime, he would have seen 450 prophets of Baal die on Mount Carmel when they faced off against Elijah. Baal did not help his father, Ahab, survive when his father went out to battle in Ramoth-Gilead. If you remember the story of the death of Ahab, a soldier, a Syrian soldier simply took a bow and shot an arrow willy-nilly, but that arrow went down through the harness the Bible says of Ahab, and he bled to death in his chariot, and the dogs licked up his blood. So likely, Jehoram thought, well, 
It didn't do my father much good to be a worshiper of Baal. It didn't do those 450 prophets any good to be a worshiper of Baal. And then his brother, the brother of Jehoram, Ahaziah, took over the rulership of the northern tribes of Israel. And Ahaziah fell down and he broke through a lattice. You remember the story how he, in his fall, was gravely injured and did not recover from his fall? So by this time, Jehoram's probably deciding, even if my queen mother, Jezebel, opposes this decision, it just doesn't look like Baal's been a real help to my family in recent generations. But we notice something in verse 3. He cleaved unto the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. Jehoram does not destroy the temples of Baal. He doesn't destroy the idols of Baal. He puts them away. He puts them in storage. And yet he continues on cleaving to the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. What were the sins of Jeroboam, the sons of Nebat? Remember, I told you this is a complex passage. But it's well worth our consideration. Well, the sins of Jeroboam, Jeroboam split the kingdom from Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, took the throne. Jeroboam split the kingdom. Ten tribes sided with Jeroboam. Two tribes sided with Rehoboam. Jeroboam, knowing that the religion of Israel had its epicenter in Jerusalem, thought, if my tribe members go back to Jerusalem year by year, their hearts will be taken from me. And so we read his plan in 1 Kings chapter 12, verse 28. The king Jeroboam took counsel and made two calves of gold and said unto them, it's too much for you to go to Jerusalem. Behold your gods, O Israel, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. He set one in Bethel, he put the other in Dan. Jeroboam led the people of Israel not only to reject king Rehoboam, but he also led them into a false religion. He led them to worship Jehovah God with golden calves in two very different locations. Jeroboam practiced a religion of convenience. Jeroboam practiced a religion of political manipulation. He professed that he knew Jehovah God, and yet he worshiped Jehovah God the right God, the wrong way. Now listen, it's far more dangerous to worship the right God the wrong way than it is to be surrounded by idol worshipers knowing that they're worshiping Baal and Molech. It's easier for believers, true believers, to stand for their faith when surrounded by those that they know to be unbelievers than it is for believers to stand for their faith when they're surrounded by those who profess to be believers, but they worship the right God the wrong way. So we discover in this passage that Jehoram is continuing after that religion of convenience. He's continuing after that religion that had been set up by Jeroboam before him, worshiping the right God the wrong way. We face a similar circumstance in America today. 22% of the population of America today is Roman Catholic. That's 70 million Roman Catholic people in America today. Roman Catholicism clearly teaches that there's assurance of salvation that can be found in the baptism of an infant. 
They are Christians, but they worship the right God the wrong way. There are 7 million Mormons in America. Of those 7 million Mormons in America, even as we referenced this morning, they believe, they'll say in Jesus Christ, after all, it's the Church of Jesus Christ for the Latter-day Saints, but they believe that Jesus Christ is a total separate entity than God the Father, that he has risen up through various emanations to the great place that he stands today, that he started out as a brother of Lucifer, and they believe that there are at least a thousand other gods who likewise and similarly can rise up. But more than that, we live in a land today of 100 million evangelicals. You say, what's an evangelical? An evangelical is a person who makes profession that the only way that they can go to heaven is through putting their faith in Jesus Christ. And yet we are surrounded by evangelicalism that practices a religion of convenience. There's no other way to describe a Saturday evening service than a religion of convenience. Recently, I read an article about preachers and sneakers. We've had that here playing down in the uh, stadium where the Pacers play. But this preachers and sneakers article was about well-to-do megachurch preachers and the cost of their sneakers. How that some of them in their skinny jeans are sporting sneakers that cost between three and five thousand dollars a pair. They're worshiping the God of materialism. And there are a lot of people who are falling prey to their false worship. Jehoram worshiped the right God the wrong way. And Jehoram went into battle in the arm of the flesh. Verse 4 tells us that Misha, the king of Moab, refused to pay tribute. Big tribute. The Moabites were a tributary nation. They had to pay tribute to the people of Israel lest they lose their freedoms. 100,000 lambs and 100,000 rams on an annual basis, whether it be simply the wool or the animal itself, we're not sure, but we know this. The Moabites were the children of Lot. They were the children of Lot through an incestuous relationship that Lot had with his daughter. You remember the Moabite king Eglon, the fat man who was killed by the dagger pressed into him by Ehud. The Moabites were a tributary nation, but they failed to pay tribute. They said, well, there's so much happening in the land of Ahab, in the northern kingdom of Israel, we probably can get away with not sending our tribute this year. And Jehoram said, no, we're not going to allow that to happen. And so he assembles his army. And more than that, Jehoram is wise enough to know for me to really get this job done. Maybe I can reach out to the king of Judah and he can work with me. And maybe we can make this alliance and get the children of Edom to work with me as well. And so it was that the three kings rose up to go out against the Moabites. And soon we'll discover that Jehoram was a failure in worship and he was also a failure in war. He brings the whole army down into the wilderness where they run out of water. His back was against the wall because he failed to understand that partial obedience is disobedience. God demands of us, listen, I'm using my words carefully, God demands of us full obedience. Deuteronomy chapter 10 and verse 12, and now Israel, what doth the Lord thy God require of thee but to fear the Lord thy God and walk in all his ways, to love him? And serve the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, to walk in all his ways. Friends, there are a lot of Christians that are a whole lot like Jehoram. 
When we pull back and do a reassessment, seek to retool, we realize that often their back is against the wall because they're living lives of partial obedience. Jesus said it this way in Luke chapter 6 and verse 46, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not the things that I say? Partial obedience is disobedience. And sadly, there are some Christian parents that are rearing their children to be partially obedient. You say, well, I would never do that. Maybe not willingly. But friend, if you're repeating yourself to your child over and again and waiting for them to say, yes, Dad, or yes, Mom, and do what's expected, every time you repeat yourself, they're less and less obedient. If you repeat yourself a second time, they're 50% obedient. A third time, they're 33% obedient. A fourth time, they're 25% obedient. You ever find yourself as a parent repeating yourself? Maybe it's to your preschooler. May God help us to raise our expectations as we raise our children so that there's an expectation of obedience. When your back is to the wall, and even before your back is to the wall, There's time for reassessment in this passage this evening. You cannot expect God's blessings if you're partially obedient. Now, in verse 8, we're introduced to another king. That king is Jehoshaphat. But this is not King Jehoshaphat who founded the northern nation. This is King Jehoshaphat who's followed in line from David through Solomon and Rehoboam. And so we read in verse 8 of uh, verse 7, rather, he sent and went to Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, saying, the king of Moab has rebelled against me. Jehoshaphat made decisions that teach us a second really powerful, really universal, really applicable principle, and it's this, that bad friends can destroy you. Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, was nearly destroyed because he made alliances not once, not twice, three times with the kings of Israel. Jehoshaphat made an alliance with Ahaz. He made an alliance with Ahaziah. Here we're reading of the alliance he made with Jehoram. Way back in 1 Kings 22, Jehoshaphat entered into his first alliance with the northern king, Ahab. Everybody that knows the name Ahab knows we're talking about the most wicked king of Israel, the northern ten tribes. Ahab was married to Jezebel. And Ahab had this desire to fight against the Syrians. So he goes to Jehoshaphat of Judah and he says, hey, will you help me out? I'm getting into this battle with the Syrians. And Jehoshaphat says, you are as I am, and I am as you are. My people are like your people, and my horses are your horses. Let's ally ourselves together. I would have gotten really phobic about the time that Ahab said, okay, now as we go into battle, I've got this plan. You wear all your kingly robes, put on your crown, sit in your chariot, and you go into battle. I'm going to dress like all the rest of our soldiers. Wait a minute, Ahab. Did you just set me up to be the target? Yeah. In fact, he was so set up to be the target that if you remember the story, as they enter into the battle, King Jehoshaphat sees that everybody is focused against him. And God preserves him when he cries out to the Lord. God preserves the line of David and Jehoshaphat. Ahab, who was dressed like any other soldier, however, was in a chariot and somebody shot an arrow 
And inadvertently, quite accidentally, but intentionally, according to the providence of God, hit Ahab so that Ahab died. But now as we read in 2 Kings, we read about another alliance. And we have to be thinking, how can this happen? In fact, he went to Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, saying, the king of Moab has rebelled against me. Will you go up with me to Moab to battle? He said, I will go up. And he says the very same thing that he said to Ahab. I am as thou art. My people is thy people. My horses is thy people. He said, which way should we go up? And he answered, the way to the wilderness of Edom. He's taking counsel. He's following the counsel. Jehoshaphat is following the counsel of Jehoram, the king of the north. Jehoshaphat is listening to the son of Ahab and following after his battle plan. Now, wait a minute. Jehoshaphat has the sons of Levi, the temple of God, the altar of Israel in Jerusalem, and he's listening for battle plans from the son of Ahab? Yes. He followed the counsel of the wicked. The psalmist reminds us in Psalm 1, blessed is a man that walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. When I was in high school, I think it was about ninth or 10th grade, I had a friend in high school who graduated, went off to a Christian college. It was a college in a very large city. He was in college for less than a semester. When he came back from college, he was quite embarrassed. His family members were disappointed. He'd gone to a Christian college where there was a rule, and the rule was you can't go into the girls' dormitory. Seems like a legitimate rule. Somebody dared my friend Larry, I dare you to go into the, the girls' dormitory. Being 18 and away from home for the very first time, he acted in a very childlike manner. He not only went into the girls' dormitory, he went up to the third story of the girls' dormitory and waved out the window. The administrator was walking by on the sidewalk and seeing a student waving out the window. Larry's college experience was very short-lived. What caused the disruption in his education and the embarrassment to his family? He followed bad counsel. Jehoshaphat allows himself to be led away by the counsel of Jehoram. Proverbs 1 says in verse 10, My son, if sinners entice thee, consent, consent thou not. Now that principle goes in business, in family practice, in any manner of unethical decision. And as I look in this passage, I discover that Jehoshaphat failed to consult the Lord. He didn't seek the Lord when he went to battle. Deuteronomy 2 and verse 9 would have been the answer to the question, Shall I go up and fight the Moabites? By the way, all the kings of Judah were to take the law and write it out for themselves, all five books of Moses. Had Jehoram written out those, Jehoshaphat rather, written out those five books of Moses, he would have come to Deuteronomy 2 and verse 9, where the Lord said, Distress not the Moabites, neither contend with them in battle, for I will not give thee their land for a possession, because I have given are unto the children of Lot. But here we find Jehoshaphat ignoring the will of God that was plainly revealed and listening to the counsel of others that will get him in terrible trouble. And I recognize that often when my back is against the wall and I find myself set about with difficulties and wondering how I'm going to face my difficulties, it's often because I've been listening to bad counsel. Take your Bibles for just a moment and turn over with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Jehoshaphat 
is going to battle with a compromised worshiper of Jehovah, one who worships the right God the wrong way because he's listened to the wrong counsel. And as we take our Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, you remember that in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul is writing to the church at Corinth and pleading with the church of Corinth to be careful about their fellowship and not to allow into the fellowship that which can destroy the testimony of the people. He says in verse 6, your glorying is not good. Don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Purge out therefore the old leaven. And you recall that he's talking in this chapter about a report according to verse 1 that had come commonly among them that there was a man in the church who was having an illicit affair with his stepmother. And the church was proud thinking, aren't we something in the city of Corinth? Paul says, don't you realize that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Purge out that leaven. Make sure that your fellowship is clean. He writes in verse 9, I wrote unto you an epistle not to company with fornicators. Paul had written a previous letter to the church at Corinth. We don't have that letter. It's not inspired by God, but 1 Corinthians is. He says, yet not altogether with the fornicators of the world, but with the covetous or extortioners or idolaters, but then you need to go out of the world. I wasn't writing and telling you you can never have a conversation in the marketplace with a person who's a fornicator. Now he explains, I've written unto you not to keep company if any man is called a brother and he's a fornicator or covetous or idolater or railer or drunkard or extortioner with such a one don't even eat for what have I to do to judge them also that are without don't you judge them that are within them that are without God judges therefore put away from you yourselves that wicked person what's Paul's plea he's saying more dangerous more dangerous more dangerous for you to have close fellowship with someone that you know to be a believer in Christ who's not walking wisely You'll hear their counsel, and you'll find your back against the wall. That's what's happening in this passage to King Jehoshaphat of Judah. As we go back to 2 Kings chapter 3, there's a third universal principle that we need to address. The failure of Jehoram and the failure of Jehoshaphat as they faced off against the people of Moab helps us to understand that even when our backs are against the wall, God in His grace is willing to send His servants to bring salvation. When the king of Eden and the king of Israel and the king of Judah were facing destruction, they looked for a servant of God. In verse 11, Jehoshaphat said, is there not a prophet of the Lord that we may inquire of the Lord by him? And one of the kings of Israel's servants answered and said, here's Elisha. He's the son of Saphet. He poured water on the hands of Elijah. And Jehoshaphat said, the word of the Lord is with him. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat and the king of Edom went down to him. Elisha was a man well-known for his humility. He poured water on the hands of the prophet Elijah, the manic, depressive prophet of the Old Testament. He humbly walked with Elijah for 10 years. He was known well for his associations with God's people. And As I look in this passage, I discover something about Elisha, this man that God used so well. I discover that the real servants of God serve God without compromise. Verse 13, Elisha said unto the king of Israel, What have I to do with thee? Get thee to the prophets of thy father and to the prophets of thy mother. And the king of Israel said unto him, Nay, for the Lord hath called these three kings together to deliver them into the hand of Moab. And Elisha said, As the Lord of hosts liveth before whom I stand. Now remember, he's talking to Ahab's son. He's talking to the king of Israel. And this is what he says. 
He says, as the Lord of hosts liveth before whom I stand, surely were it not that I regard the presence of Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, I would not look toward thee. I would not even see you. Wow. Elisha is not willing to compromise to be popular. Even so, the real servants of the Lord are not willing to compromise in order to be popular. The Word of God has called us to a higher ethic. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 15, we're to speak the truth in love. And the Apostle Paul must have practiced that ethic because in Galatians 4 and verse 16, he said, am I now your enemy because I tell you the truth? Elisha is telling the truth. It's not always easy. I remember years ago, a couple came to me and asked me if I would help them with their marriage. Knowing something of their background, I knew that they had once been married to each other, that they had divorced. Normally, I'd say, yes, I'd be happy to reconstitute your marriage, but I knew that she had been remarried and he had been remarried, and they had each divorced their second wife and husband, and now they were coming back together, and they asked, Pastor Phelps, can you help us be remarried? I gulped hard, and I turned to Deuteronomy chapter 24, and I said, I'm sorry, but I I don't have conscience to help you in your remarriage. Deuteronomy chapter 24 says if you've been divorced and you marry another and you divorce that one, you can't come back to the first one. Now, I know it's Old Testament, but that's where I want to be. And I said, "I, I can't help you. You know, that's not an easy thing to say to somebody that's been coming to your church for a few months. The next day, sure enough, I got a phone call from the lady. Secretary said she'd like to come and visit with you. I said, that'd be fine. I gulped hard as the door was open. I thought, uh-oh, here it comes. She's going to be upset. She walked in my office and she said, thank you, thank you, thank you. I said, what? She said, I thought I had to remarry him. I don't want to marry him. I said, you're welcome. It doesn't always work that way, does it? There are a lot of times when we're honest and applying God's word when people don't come and thank you. God wants his servants to be courageous. It is, after all, his word. The real servant of God seeks to speak always in the spirit. The 15th verse is an interesting verse in this text. Bring me a minstrel, a musician, Elisha says. And when the minstrel played, the hand of the Lord came upon him. I don't completely understand the 15th verse of 2 Kings chapter 3, but I know this. That is, Saul and David recognized the power of music Elisha recognized the power of music. When David played the harp, he didn't sing when he played. Just the sound of the harp tamed the heart of King Saul. A minstrel was a player of stringed instruments. There's no indication in this passage that this minstrel who was called was singing any any edifying words. He simply played, and the sound of the music somehow ministered to the soul of the prophet Elisha, and now he was prepared for service of the Lord. Hey, friends, don't believe the contemporary world's lie that music as a medium of itself is not powerful. Music is a language of emotion. It's a universal language of emotion. And some emotions are wrong for Christians. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice and be kind one to another. When we gravitate toward music that is filled with anger and malice and sensuality, 
or gravitating toward an emotion that can be very destructive. So it is that Elisha asked for the minstrel and he plays. Luther said, one of the finest and noblest gifts of God is music. This is very hateful to the devil. And with it, we may drive off temptations and evil thoughts. After theology, said Luther, I give the next and highest place to music. It's often aroused and moved me so that I have one a desire to preach. We ought not to ordain young men to the office of preacher if they've not trained themselves and practiced singing in the schools. The spirit of darkness, said Luther, abhors sweet sounds. Edersheim said, our deepest feelings are poured forth in music as their most appropriate language, our highest thoughts in poetry. The mistake in sensual worship lies in this, that it's wholly incongruous. Now, he said this a hundred years ago. It's wholly incongruous to God and foreign to his service. Sensual worship's mistake is it's wholly incongruous to God and foreign to his service. This, like so many of God's good gifts, when misapplied, often leads from God instead of serving the handmaid as the handmaid of religion. In March, Dr. Scott Annual, who served with me as an intern years ago, wrote, I've been identifying for many years music, that music has taken on an unprecedented, indeed unbiblical role in contemporary evangelical worship today in which music is used to create what modern Christians assume to be feelings of spirituality or the felt presence of God or even revival. And because this function has become so entrenched in contemporary evangelicalism, to question the music, the feelings, or the experiences is to question for them the very work of God in many evangelicals' minds. Be careful. Real servants don't compromise, and real servants seek to speak in the Spirit. And real servants of God have a message of hope. And so we find it here, thus saith the Lord God, in verse 16, make this valley full of ditches, says Elisha, for thus saith the Lord, you shall not see wind, it's going to be a miracle, you're not going to see rain, but the valley's going to be filled up with water so that both you and your beasts can drink. And this, just this water giving that you're asking, that's a light thing. God's also, he says, going to give you the Moabites. You're going to conquer the Moabite people. There's a controversy with regard to verse 16 as to the matter of digging these ditches. But we know this seems from the route that the children of Israel has taken through the, through the wilderness, that in that route through the wilderness, they went through the place called Edom, and the place called Edom was well known for its water coming down over the parched ground and swelling so that it could fill the plain. And so it was that God sent a great water and the real servants of God always point to Christ. As we see in the miracle here, it came to pass in the morning, verse 20, when the meat offering was offered. Behold, there came water out of the way of Edom, and the country was filled with water. And when all the Moabites heard that the kings were come up to the fight against them, they gathered all that were able to put on armor and upward and stood in the border. They rose up early in the morning, and the sun shone upon the water, and the Moabites saw the water on the other side, and they looked at it, and they thought they saw blood. Now to those who were saved, this was the water of life. But to those who were condemned, this was the blood of condemnation. Even today, it's this way. For those who are saved, the blood of Jesus Christ that we remember this evening as we gather around the table is the water of life. For it's the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, that cleanses us from all sin. <clears throat> but for those in the world who look without understanding, it becomes to them the water of condemnation. For Judah and Israel, it was the water of life. For Moab, it was the blood of death. For Judah and Israel, it was God's provision. For Moab, it was nothing but confusion. How confused were they? Look at verse 26. When the king of Moab saw the battle was too sore for him, he took with him 700 men that drew swords. 
to break through, he tried to get away, and they could not. So he took his oldest son that it should have reigned in his stead and offered him for a burnt offering upon the wall. And the armies looked at the wall where the king of Moab was hiding, and they saw a human sacrifice, and it was so repulsive to them that they went away staggering at the offense of those in the world who will look to anything, look to anything other than Jehovah God, shocking the sensibilities of others, and the armies went away. Lessons from an obscure text that meet with us in the culture in which we live today, shocked by what people are doing to find peace with God, knowing that real peace with God comes only from that source of evervescent flowing water that he promised when he said in John chapter 3, he can give us to drink of water that people don't even know of. May God help us to learn lessons even before our backs are against the wall. Father, this evening, I pray that as we gather around your table, we gather expecting your blessing, thanking you for your word, how it meets us where we live, how it draws us to you. May your word this evening be precious to our hearts. And may, Lord, we go out from this place better able to serve you from what we've learned. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. This podcast has been a ministry of Colonial Hills Baptist Church, a church home for all people. If what you've heard has been an encouragement to you, please subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. If you'd like to connect with Colonial or find more resources, you can find us online at colonialindy.org. You can also check us out on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for joining us today, and we hope to see you next time on the Colonial Hills Podcast. Thank you.